Welcome to this CEC podcast. My name is John Dunnett. I'm the National Director of the Church of England Evangelical Council. In this episode, we are thinking about living in love and faith. I'm pleased to be able to welcome to this podcast, Helen Lamb and Ed Shaw. Hi, John. Uh, my name is Helen Lamb. I live uh, in Oxford. Uh, I'm member of the Church of England Evangelical Council and chair of the working group. Uh, and I have a sleeping dog in the room who may snore slightly loudly. Thank you. Ed, what about you, brother? Um, I am a licensed lay minister in the Diocese of Bristol, where they entrust me to lead a church. So I'm speaking for my church building. There's a mums and toddler group happening all around me. So any scorts, not me, but them. Um, I'm also the ministry director of Living Out um, on the General Synod of the Church of England, and I'm a co-chair of the Church of England Evangelical Council. I'm very busy. <laughs> very busy. Uh, well, it's great to have you guys um, uh, on this podcast. Um, let's just um, remind for what, what we're talking about today. So, so for those who feel they are um, in the dark about this, what, what is Living in Love and Faith? What's it been all about? So Living in Love and Faith was a central Church of England uh, project kicked off in 2017 um, after um, a, a bit of a mess at General Synod um, around some decision that the Church of England was trying to make. And it was a project to really scope out what people in the Church of England believe about sex, marriage and relationships. And in some ways, the aim was to try and bring unity, that we do this big project and we discover that actually there's a huge amount of unity and would work out a way of of agreeing and staying together. And so time, effort was put into it. I was part of one of the groups that produced the pastoral principles that was part of the LLF process. Um, and I think the hope was at the end of it, we'd all just come to an agreed position about what the Church of England says about sex, marriage and relationships. Unfortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, but, but also predictably, all the project did was um, it, it exposed how much we disagree on issues and experiences around sex and marriage and relationships. We now understand each other much better. That was a positive, but it's always the negative side of the whole project was it exposed irreconcilable differences amongst different Anglicans about sex, marriage and relationships. Helen, why, why is this such a decision moment or point? Why, why is um, this general synod and this moment so significant? One of the things uh, the Living in Love and Faith process did was raise expectations. So we definitely came out where those who are looking for change expected change. And so we subsequent moved into this phase of uh, developing PLF, the Prayers of Love and Faith, um, which is, is really designed to say, what can we change that will enable there to be a sense that some things have moved in the direction that those seeking change are wanting? but still protects uh, the extent to which there is widespread disagreement and deep disagreement. And so this year has been a, an exercise in the bishops trying to find a way, and they, they've talked a lot about um, inhabiting a space where the doctrine of the church is not changed, but practice is in limited ways, in ways that might help to satisfy some of those who fundamentally would like uh, equal marriage. So for marriage to be between a man and a woman, two men or two women, uh, depending on what people want. Um, this November Synod has been decisive because it has uh, resulted in a, a vote that has allowed the bishops to say they will commend prayers to be used in Church of England services. So for the first time, there will be actually 
uh, centrally produced prayers that can be used in the course of normal services, and also that it, it will allow them to say they've been asked to consider having standalone services, which will presumably be cast to look as close to a marriage service as they can. So a decision has been made, albeit by a tiny majority, and a decision has been made, um, albeit with um, a number of um, notable deficiencies in terms of process, and a decision has been made, um, regardless of the fact that the legal advice is not there for the houses of clergy and laity to see that the Faith and Order Commission has not made the kind of contribution it expected to be made. The pastoral guidance has not been completed and we were not able to see it. A decision has been made. I guess the question therefore is, um, why are we so concerned by that decision? Where does that decision um, now leave us? Why, why are we making this podcast? Um, why is CEC um, so concerned about this? So let, let's go kind of helicopter up to the, the, the top level. Why is this such a big deal, Ed? Well, when when societies, when Christian churches break the link between sex and marriage, and when they change the definition of marriage, the people that suffer most are women and children, um, who marriage is there to protect. Um, and also, um, this is the huge irony, um, in the Church of England as it changes its teaching on sex and marriage to help same-sex attractive gay people like me, um, this isn't, this isn't going to help us. This is actually saying to someone like me, actually, you could be married to somebody of the same sex. You could have a sexual relationship with them. Um, that would be okay. I mean, it wouldn't quite be okay enough for you to get married, but it would be sort of okay. You are listening to the CEEC Making Sense Of podcast, which is where we get to grips with issues that we know are important for Christians at the current time. This is an accessible place to start to think biblically around key issues and how the good news of Jesus impacts them. Do let us know if you have themes or topics that we could address in future episodes. Email us podcast at cec.info or connect with us on CEC social media channels. And what does that what does that do for me as I seek to live in the light of what the Bible clearly teaches that sex is the marriage of man and woman? It, it basically creates doubt. Somebody in his speech pointed out that the Church of England is saying something very similar to what the devil says to Eve right at the back at the beginning of, of all things. Did God really say? And the Church of England is now saying to people like myself, did God really say? that sex is just the marriage of a man and woman. Did God really say that um, you can't have sex uh, with another man? And for the church that I'm part of to be whispering that into my ear is a very troubling, very harmful thing for it to do. Helen. I think uh, for some people, this is going to come as a great surprise. There's suddenly headlines saying the Church of England is blessing same-sex relationships. Uh, so I think at the overall level, this is a big deal because for churches up and down the land of England, suddenly it seems that the church has done something quite extraordinary and we're not quite sure what it is. So if you press into it, we're not quite sure if we're blessing relationships, as Ed says, or people. The bishops have tried to draw a distinction there. 
to the average person in the pew, I'm really not sure that the distinction makes much sense. Uh, we're saying we're not quite sure whether sexual activity is just for marriage or not. From a youth work perspective, that is just catastrophic. And as Ed says, it's women and children who are most protected by um, by a Christian sexual ethic of sex just being in, in the context of lifelong marriage. We know already that the secular world is just catching up to the damage of the sexual revolution. And actually teenagers are desperate to hear that there is something good and positive about sex because they're growing up in a context where, frankly, sex is becoming incredibly toxic. Let's just clarify a couple of things um, for, for those who are listening. Um, first of all, the Church of England has not always had everything right in terms of its approach to sex and sexuality, has it? And one of the things that um, was made clear during the LLF process is that there are times when the Church has been homophobic, um, unwelcoming, etc. Uh, I mean, Ed, any comment on that in particular? Churches wanting to ask themselves the question, how are we doing? I mean, how can living out help them? to have that kind of self-look, self-investigation? Yes, yeah, so um, the churches, all sorts of churches have got to look at both their theology and their practice and work out, actually, are we being truly biblical? And often uh, churches who've had great theology have not let that work out in their pastoral practice in the sense of they haven't been welcoming of all people and they've made it very difficult for single people in general, particularly same-sex attractive people, made it very difficult for us to feel part of, be part of, of local church families. And Living Out exists, exists as an organisation to help people change that. We've got an audit that is really good for local churches to try and work out how biblically inclusive they are or are not. And what's the website address to find that audit, Ed? Livingout.org. So let's be clear, um, the Church of England's doctrine of marriage has been stated to be in place and unchanging. It's between one man and one woman, um, and we expect them to um, marry for life. Um, it's also been made clear that um, the doctrine of um, sex or our sexual ethics is that um, the appropriate place for sexual intimacy is between a man and a woman in marriage. So there's been um, a, a reaffirmation of that. And yes, of course, at the same time, there now seems to be some confusion, because having said that, we are nonetheless allowed to bless people in a relationship that may not be um, uh, in keeping with that. So we'll come back to that in a second. But um, I mean, Ed, from inside the room or Helen from outside the room, what were the other kind of notable points that it's worth people just hearing in kind of headline format? I did watch some of the debates. In fact, a good chunk of them, they were all being streamed on YouTube. Um, there were a number of amendments and then the final vote. And that meant there were lots of opportunities to see how Synod was, uh, was voting, what they were thinking. And the thing that was just extraordinary was almost every vote was 50. So uh, every vote was very close. One vote for an amendment went through by one vote in the House of Laity. And I think what became clear was that although you can argue synod various things, it did so with a very slim major majority. And the reality is the church is split down the middle. And we uh, can see that is going to cause immense problems as we look to what happens next, because whatever we do, there's a very clear um, division right down the middle of the Church of England. So I think one key headline is it was very close. Uh, there are lots of people 
who are still holding to the traditional teaching of the Church of England down through history across the world um, in the Church of England today. I think the second thing that I noticed, and I think this was clear from people arguing actually all sides, um, was that this is very much a proxy vote. So there is an absolutely clear commitment that nobody wants any sign of homophobia in the Church of England, that there is much that we do need to repent of for the way that people have been treated in the past um, who are same-sex attracted or are gay and the particular experiences that they've had or uh, pastoral care and responses that they've had within churches. And those who are opposed to the church changing its teaching on sexual ethics are not opposed because they're being homophobic. We're wanting to say that marriage is between a man and a woman because it points to something fundamental about the nature of the relationship between Jesus and the church and something about the gospel. So the gospel is good news for all of us because we are all sinners and we need redeeming. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came for those who are sick and need a doctor, not the healthy. And both of those mean that we are all changed as we encounter him. And that is a different gospel than one that says God loves us and love is love. And whatever makes us feel loved is what God wants to affirm in us. And we have two different gospel messages. And it was very clear and that there was honesty from uh, people arguing both directions that that is actually at the heart of our disagreement is do we believe the gospel is about God affirming us as we are or do we believe that the gospel is a call to repentance and transformation into the likeness of Christ which is for all of us no matter what our particular experience we're an Episcopal church so what our bishops do and say um, is important and I think we've all been um, watching very closely this year what, what our bishops have been doing and saying. And last February, four bishops, four members of the House of Bishops voted against their own motion. Um, in the last few weeks, we had um, a dozen bishops um, expressing concerns about the whole um, prayers of love and faith endeavour. Then we had 44 bishops saying they were fully supportive of it. And then just this week, in the final vote, 23 bishops voted in favour, 10 voted against, and four abstained. It was a massive, it's been a massive encouragement to see uh, the leadership of those dissenting bishops who said that these prayers of love and faith um, are going to change the, the, the church's teaching and they, they want to rightly oppose that. It's been so lovely to um, interact with them, to encourage them, to see them stand up in the context of, of, of general synods and speak against the changes or vote against the changes. It's a particularly brave thing for them to do. And it's a particularly rare thing to happen in Church of England debates. The House of Bishops increasingly stick together, talk of collegiality, talk of the need for them to um, yeah, stick together on big issues like this. So, so then for them to break ranks, as it were, um, has been a massive thing for them to do, but a hugely encouraging thing uh, for same-sex attractive people like me to witness, because we feel as if there's there's some bishops that, as it were, have got our backs, and that's been fantastic. Helen, from outside the Synod room, what did it look like? Well, I found the whole thing profoundly sad on a number of levels, but I found it very sad to hear the bishops continually talk of us being in a period of uncertainty, and I think someone pointed out on the floor of Synod that, that there isn't much uncertainty being expressed in the debate. There's just disagreement from a position of certainty 
in different directions. And I think that was also clear from the bishops. So, so I think I found it very sad to be in an Episcopally led church and to watch bishops who hold particular responsibilities under God asserting things that frankly are not borne out by the evidence. Several of the amendments focused on very specific details, legal advice, um, has the Faith and Order Commission been involved and to what extent, um, what is in the missing bit of the pastoral guidance? Uh, and you could be forgiven for thinking, why, why are people pursuing such, such detail? Why was so much time given to all of that? Why so many amendments? Why does all that stuff matter, Ed? Well, good governance matters in any organisation. And one of the tragedies of what's been happening recently in the Church of England is that we seem to have been binning God's word, but we're also binning good governance. And so General Synod was trying to make decisions without the legal advice that we need to try and work out whether people like myself, licensed lay ministers, clergy are going to be sort of protected under church and national law. We weren't given that advice that we needed. The House of Bishops had it, but they didn't share that with the rest of Synod. And the pastoral guidance, which is particularly um, focused on the clergy and licensed lay ministers, which is meant to provide clarity as to how we order our lives, whether we can enter a same-sex civil marriage, whether we can be uh, in a same-sex uh, sexual relationship. Um, we were told, well, we were promised in the past that we would have that. We promised we'd have it in July. In July, we were promised we would have that in November. And then we were told that, oh, the whole nature of this document has changed. It's going to be an iterative document. It's going to be sort of handed out in little bit of sections at different times. Um, the reality is that we know it exists. Um, I've personally read an early draft. And so we had this very odd situation where they said this is a developing document when we all know that it's already been developed quite a bit and they weren't sharing with us and the suspicion is that that's because what what it contains is something that their legal advice is telling them they can't uh, share without being exposed as having changed the doctrine of the church of england when it comes to sex and marriage helen any comment on that I, it's interesting. There's there's often a goodness. How can we possibly complain that this is being rushed? LLF started seven years ago, but the reality is we spent six years going through a process which was partly extended by COVID of exploring what people across the Church of England think, and then in less than a year, there's been a kind of breakneck, headlong rush to try and get something legally over the line, which is the very part that actually requires quite careful attention and and thoughtful process and governance, as Ed says, and it it just is extraordinary to look at um, what is a legislative body with particular responsibilities, essentially shrugging its shoulders seemingly and saying, well, let's just do it. Plus, you know, we all know that governance is in there deliberately to safeguard when the pressure is on, because that's the time that it is most straightforward to say, let's cut corners, and most important not to, because that's when, uh, well, either wrong things or damaging things get pushed through because someone's got enough momentum or a group's got enough momentum to make it happen and there's a there's a kind of urgent need and that's what we have here so there are safeguards in governance that doctrine is only changed with two-thirds majorities in each house exactly so that the church is moving with a consensus and of one mind it's abundantly clear that isn't the case here so it feels as though they're looking for 
any route to get something over the line, even if that means they they're going to choose unlawful routes. And again, you know, for an episcopally led organization to watch the bishops essentially seem to live according to the end justifying the means is just extraordinary in the in the extreme. It has to be a significant moment, doesn't it? When what we're saying is that we can read the Bible and say yes to something that for 2000 years um, across every culture, across every continent, we've always been clear that the Bible has said no. Uh, and yet we now feel able um, to say yes. Well, thank you so much for listening and watching this podcast. An enormous thanks to Ed and Helen. And if you'd like to watch the second half of this discussion, and in particular, what CEC is doing to respond um, to the recent General Synod decisions, watch this space. But in the meantime, you can find out more about what it is that CEC is doing and thinking uh, on social media, via our e-bulletin and on our website, cec.info. Thanks again for being with us.